Hey everybody, what is going on? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Sweeten Up. I am your host as always, Jeff Spencer, coming at you from my podcast studio located in the heart of Newtown, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining me today. Whether it's the first time or you have for a while, I greatly appreciate it. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcast so you never miss a future episode. Also, the podcast is located on Facebook and Instagram. Just search at Sweeten Up Podcast. Last but not least, if you have a smart speaker, just say, play the podcast Sweeten Up with Jeff Spencer. Today, I was so excited to be joined by the great and powerful Julie Kushner. Julie Kushner is an American politician and current Connecticut State Senator representing Connecticut's 24th Senate District. We had an amazing conversation ranging from COVID-19, growing up in Iowa and Nebraska, fighting for working families for many decades, thoughts on Kamala Harris, and so much more. So, without further ado, my friend, Connecticut State Senator Julie Kushner. Joining me on the podcast today, I am so thrilled to be sitting down via Zoom video conferencing with a tremendous individual and leader in the state of Connecticut representing the 24th Senate District, which encompasses the towns of Danbury, New Fairfield, Sherman, and a portion of Bethel, the great and powerful Senator Julie Kushner. Senator Kushner, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon on such a beautiful day, and how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate during this very difficult time. I've had so many friends and family that have done all right and have been incredibly supportive. And, you know, I, I am inspired by all the people that pull together and help each other. And, you know, I think out of this horrible, horrible pandemic that there could be some good things that come from it. And so, you know, I, I'm an optimist. I look on, on what can we learn and what can we accomplish from a horrific crisis like this. And, and uh, so there's a lot to be thankful for, a lot to look forward to. No, I couldn't agree more. That's a great way to put it. Um, very well said. <laughs> One of the reasons why you're on here, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of your work. So I guess that's a good place to start just because of um, there was sort of a recent spike over the last day or so in Danbury. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, is that from just people returning from vacation or is that just kind of, you know, because more people are getting tested? Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I believe it's, it's a result of, from what I've read, and I don't know any more than probably what the general public has read, um, but what I've read about is that they believe some of the hotspots have been a result of recreational sports at the city parks. They also um, say that some international travel may have had an impact here, people returning from traveling out of the country. Uh, there was one article that quoted someone in the governor's office saying there was a belief that it may have been from a result of family gatherings, barbecues, and particularly in the Portuguese community. And uh, so, you know, I think last night when I did the uh, post, I was very, I, I did a post last night to try and alert people to the issue, and I was able to get it translated both into Spanish and into Portuguese. So hopefully, the and ask people to spread the word. I, I think that uh, it just is a reminder of how serious things can get very quickly if we are not mindful, if we are not uh, wearing masks, social distancing, quarantining after international travel, 
the things or any travel to any of the states that are on the governor's list, these are things that we can do to protect our community. And even if you yourself feel fine, you don't believe in it, you don't think it's, you don't, you know, you're not convinced. Right. I, I think that I saw someone say, do it for the community, uh, for those of us who are concerned. And it's just a way of being respectful of your neighbors and of your community um, by paying attention to these rules. and. I think it was really hard to go through the summer and feel so healthy, all of us. You know, one of the things uh, I talked about growing out of the pandemic, some good things are happening. I, I've met a lot more neighbors because people are walking in the streets now. And I live in a part of Danbury where we had some walkers, but not like now. Now, uh, I met some new neighbors who moved in in March and I asked them if they were normally walkers and they said no they've never done this before and I know where they live they're walking a good three miles every time they take their tour of our neighborhood and I thought this is great and the guy said oh I've lost a ton of weight and I'm like this is a good thing <laughs> so I, I think that you know being really mindful of our communities and protective is is a really important thing so I hope this is a very short-lived experience it with this little spike we have right now. Uh, it is concerning. Uh, there were 44 cases in Danbury on Friday. That's a lot of cases. Uh, and pretty much all last week, except for one day, there were, you know, double digit of cases. So we had over 100 cases from Sunday through Friday. And so you gotta, you just got to pay attention. So Regardless of the recent spikes, I know that Connecticut has been on track. Um, we're in a place where we're doing much better than basically any other state. And, you know, maybe that'll go back and forth and change at some point. But why do you think it is that we were doing so well? It's a question I've been asking a lot of people that have been coming on. Well, I think several factors. One, uh, we were early uh, to get uh, to be sort of subjected to the virus. Uh, and because of that, and because people didn't know very much, we shut down really quick. And I think that quick action by the governor, I mean, I remember it all so well, because I was uh, in Hartford at the uh, legislative office building on a Friday, and I got a message that, that the governor was going to be in Danbury that night, because the first case in Connecticut had, the first person had tested positive. So I remember racing down to Danbury Friday night, and it was you know, I felt like it was important to be there, but it didn't feel real. And um, the following, you know, I went back to work. You know, I went back to work on, on Monday and right. was at the legislature. And on Wednesday, when we left the Capitol after a session day, we thought we were going home for four days to uh, let them deep clean the building. And then we'd be back on Monday. I really, truly believed we would be back on Monday. And of course, we didn't, I didn't go back until the end of July for the special session. I hadn't been in my office even for a minute. And I think that quick action, the other thing I attribute it to, I mean, I think it's interesting. I was one of the really cautious people throughout this process. I'd probably driven all of the commissioners and the governor completely crazy because I'm one of the people who says, let's just be clear. Let's be really super careful. Maybe we're not ready to reopen. Every time I've said that, I hope I'm wrong. And I mean that, like I want to be proven wrong when it comes to the spread of this virus. So that caution that I exhibited, it wasn't always uh, reflected in the executive orders, um, but I'm happy that I was wrong, that we could do that and do it safely. 
And I appreciate the leadership of the state and the governor in that regard. Uh, you know, I also found, you know, there were there was so much behind the scenes thought that went into every executive order and every practice. So uh, I know this from my own experience because at the beginning of this pandemic, the state senate uh, caucus that I'm in, the Democratic caucus, met every day for hours and reviewing what was going on and what needed to be responded to and how could we contribute. And I worked with another senator to uh, a colleague from Greenwich, uh, Alex Kasser, and we worked on what would be the safest practices for reopening businesses that following week. I'm talking back in March. And, uh, you know, we really thought about it. We wrote things up. And then the Commissioner of Economic Development, David Lehman, spent hours with us going over our thoughts on these things. And so there was a lot of input from a lot of people, not just me, and but a lot of people had input. And I think out of that, we came up with some good guidelines. And as a result, we did better. The final thing I really think is important is the people of Connecticut. We did not break down into political bipartisanship. We, I mean, political partisanship where you know, Democrats wore masks and Republicans didn't, and the independents went either way. Um, that did not happen here. I think that people really paid attention in a very across the board way. Uh, and I believed this, and it's what I thought from the phone calls I had from constituent letters. I mean, I got tons of constituent mail, tons of phone calls from constituents with problems, questions, and it didn't matter what party they were or if they were unaffiliated, they were all being very respectful and careful. And as a result, I think we really um, didn't have that breakdown uh, politically. And I think that we really were in it together. And when we said that, it wasn't just a slogan. I think people really reacted that way. And I felt that way through this whole time period. But when we had the primary election, I looked very closely at the results in Danbury. And in Danbury, where there was a sizable vote, you know, uh, both by Republicans and Democrats, it was really fascinating to me because I expected Democrats to vote absentee in a big number. And it was, it was 75% of the vote. But what I saw that was really, really reassuring is that 55% of those who voted Republican voted by absentee. So this idea that uh, you hear from Trump and from the White House administration and many Republicans that absentee balloting is fraud and you can't do it and nobody wants to do it and it's you know ho hokey and it's a hoax and all of that did not bear out with what the citizens, the people who were voting believed. So you saw this huge increase in majority support for absentee ballot in both parties. And I believe that is a reflection of how much this is not a partisan political thing. No matter, you're gonna have some people, some voices out there that say that. Uh, I got that on Facebook today from someone who said, you Democrats just wanna say there's a COVID uh, alert in Danbury because it's political. <laughs> the neighbor of Danbury was putting out this information. He's a exactly. Republican. It exactly. is not political. Right. It is 
our reality. And it's, and um, so, you know, I feel like we have done really well here. And I think it really is a, tr a tribute to our neighbors and our communities and to the administration and the way they've handled it. No, I, I agree with everything you said. And, uh, and, and Mayor Mark is tremendous. Great guy, friend of the podcast. He's been on. We, we love him very much. And so he gives it straight to you. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, there's, there's, it doesn't get much better than that. But to switch gears a little bit here, I understand that you were born in Iowa and you grew up in Nebraska. And so I'm curious to, and I'm curious to ask you, what was it like living there and growing up in, in those two places? And I know that you moved to Danbury from New York, from New York City in 1993. And so I'm just curious, what made you uh, eventually make your way over here to, uh, to Danbury? So uh, not only did I grow up in a very different part of the country, uh, but even more so in the 1950s. So I was born in 1952 in a little farm town in Iowa. And, you know, life was very different all over the world in 1952, but particularly uh, the differences between, you know, the cultures and the uh, customs in small towns versus larger towns back then was even greater than it is today, you know, TV and the internet and, you know, that's all over the place, all over the world now. So you don't see those distinctions as much, but I felt like I grew up in a very safe, a very, uh, a safe bubble in Iowa where uh, I, I really appreciate the youth that I had there. I stayed there until I was 10. Nobody locked their cars. Nobody locked their houses. <laughs> uh, you know, I, from a very, very young age, I could walk down the block on Main Street. We lived on Main Street. I could walk to my dad's grocery store. You know, we had an operator who you call, you picked up the phone and the operator literally would say, you know, she, she wouldn't always say what number, please, which you hear on TV, because she knew all of us. Right. <laughs> like, and if we, if we were home alone and we were being outrageous and raucous as little kids running around, she would call us and say, you kids settle down. I heard you guys are making too much noise. So, you know, uh, that experience uh, it was a farm town, so I have an appreciation for farmers. Uh, it was all small businesses. I have an appreciation for uh, the importance of small businesses. My dad was a small businessman, all my uncles, my grandparents. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate that experience. We moved to Lincoln when I was 10, and we, and we moved primarily because we were the only Jewish family in this town of 1,500 people. My parents wanted us to have a Jewish experience uh, that we couldn't have in, in Hamburg, Iowa. And so we moved to Lincoln, where there <laughs> were 16 kids my age. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Lincoln was still, it was much more of an urban setting. And my dad still owned a small business, but, uh, and he thrived in that business with, my, with his brother. And uh, it was a very tight-knit community, still the Jewish community within Lincoln. And, you know, again, it was just a wonderful prairie experience. I learned a lot uh, about them. You know, I, I'm a Midwesterner, really, at heart. And there's a lot about that that I value. Uh, I moved to New York when I was young, when I was 20, I think I was 23 when I first moved there. Okay. And I worked in New York City for uh, about 25, about 17 years. And in that work, I was a union representative. I helped workers to organize unions. I represented them in negotiations and uh, got involved in political action, which is so essential to to uh, the work that we did. And and so I had a, a, a great experience doing that. I was organizing 
secretaries, primarily white collar workers who, you know, nobody really thought of as real workers. You know, somehow if you were a secretary in a university or a publishing office, you weren't a real worker. Of course, you felt that way when, you felt <laughs> like a real worker when your paycheck came and yeah. when your health benefits were cut or, uh, you know, you didn't have enough of a pension to live on when you retired. And so uh, organizing secretaries was really about winning rights and getting some equality. Uh, my first really big campaign uh, was working with the secretaries at Columbia University. And, you know, it was a primarily female workforce, a big workforce, about 1,100 workers. And those workers who had pretty high skill levels were making less money than their male counterparts on campus. Uh, and the black and brown workers were making less money in the same jobs than their white counterparts. And this was, you know, uh, it was an injustice that could be fixed. And what I found wonderful about the experience is that, you know, we organized very organically, you know, very much uh, driven by the workers. I was there to help them and guide them and answer questions, but they did the hard work of organizing. We won a contract and in that contract, we had an equity fund and we had, uh, we were able to roll back some of the health care cuts uh, we were able to accomplish so much in that very first contract. And so uh, we didn't do it by ourselves. We had a lot of help from the community, from the faculty, from the students, from the elected officials, from the neighborhood. So I, I learned a lot at a young age about how to have a goal and organize people and mobilize people to make that change that you desire. And that's really what my work was. And uh, I found that that it sort of transitions into why I'm doing the work I am today yeah. and how much it prepared me for that work. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, you know, you seem to really like to fight for other people. And I think that's super cool. And, it, and it's, it, it's very, uh, um, you know, you, you can just see it. What was, what inspired you? What was the, uh, what was the moment where you said, you know, I'm going to run for state senator? Was it, was it a moment? Was it an inspiration? Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. You know, I wish I had a story <laughs> with a moment. Um, right. It wasn't a moment. It was a lot of consideration. I was retiring after 42 years of work in the labor movement, and a lot of people knew I was planning this retirement for 2018. And I, I knew I wanted to do something that would continue to help working families, uh, whether that was within the labor movement or with, you know, in another uh, space. I was absolutely certain I wasn't going to just retire and go on vacation. That, wasn't my style. And my friends knew that too. And so a lot of people started uh, talking to me about becoming the state senator. And in part, that was because there, you know, this was a very, there was uh, a long term state senator, 10 years in the position, who had very, very different views than I do, a uh, very different approach to what would make our state stronger. And so the contrast was really clear. My friends convinced me that, uh, and people here in the community, that this was something that was important for me to do and that it would make a difference. And I think that's always what's driven me. If there are problems, uh, I feel like I'm good at finding solutions and working to bring people together around those solutions, but I really wanna be in a position where I can get something done. And they convinced me that would be the case if I ran for state senate. 
Nice, nice. That's great. And how how was the um, the whole process, campaigning and everything like that? I mean, I'm I'm sure it had to have been tiresome. Now, I don't know. You know, I maybe you can tell already from this conversation. I really enjoy talking with people. No, yeah, I could definitely tell. Yeah. So a lot of campaigning, uh, if you're a good candidate, they say you like talking to people and you like uh, being out there. And for me, that was the easiest part of the campaign, connecting with people I didn't know, uh, to me is always interesting. It's exciting. It's not scary to me at all. Uh, if anything, I'd probably go overboard. So I, I talk to anybody. My husband says, you'll talk to anybody, anywhere. And <laughs> I just walked in. He said, she talks to wrong numbers from Washington. It's true. I always find common ground with people because that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping for in every conversation. Right. Even if it's not complete common ground, if there's something we can connect on, whether it's, you know, having grown up in a farm community like we just did, or, you know, whether it's over a political issue, um, that to me is interesting. People are, I'm fascinated by people. I enjoy talking to people. So the campaigning part for me was uh, just wonderful. And you know, I, the 2018 campaign was really, uh, unlike today, we were spent a lot of time. I spent a huge amount of time every moment uh, in the evening after work, every weekend day, I was knocking on doors to neighbors and people throughout the district. And those conversations stay with me. And what always surprises people is they don't just go in, you know, I'm really focused on it and, and listening and connecting so that they don't go in one ear and out the other. And so today, you know, like somebody will say, oh, you came by my house. And sometimes they need a prompt, like, where did you live? And once I have that geographic fix in my mind, I remember the person, I remember the conversation. Often I remember, you know, like, oh, you invited me in and we had coffee. And <laughs> you had just moved to Danbury and you and your husband work at the Salvation Army uh, mission here. You know, like it was a wonderful conversation I had with those folks. And, you know, over the last two years, I've run into people like that. Or, or the woman whose daughter works at Starbucks and I went in, you know, now it's like a year later and I went in to get some coffee and there was something that bothered me and I knew it wasn't her fault. So I said, you know, I want to talk to your manager, but I don't, you know, you, you didn't do anything wrong here, but I want to, I want, there's something I want to say. So write down my name. She said, Oh, I know who you are. And I'm like, you do. And she said, yeah, you knocked on my, my door, my house. And she said, my mother really liked your glasses and where you got them. And you told her and she bought them. And I was like, eat in court. I remember the whole conversation. I can't believe I remember that, but, but that's like how much I really enjoy connecting with people. And so for me, the campaigning wasn't difficult. It was exciting and interesting and uh, rewarding. I learned a lot about Danbury and I learned everything about Sherman. I knew nothing about Sherman when I started. I knew Fairfield is an incredible community, beautiful lake uh, and, you know, very hilly, very, interesting uh, people, interesting homes. And then you have Bethel, which is a changing community. And uh, so much of it was, you know, people talking about that change and what it meant to them in their lives. So, you know, I found people I connected to, like, I can't tell you how many times I found somebody who we had some connection in the past. I happened to be in Bethel and a guy was out weeding a garden, older guy. And uh, he said, he doesn't live there. He's from New York. And go talk to his daughter. So I went and talked to his daughter and I was talking about my union work. And she said, you know, my dad was a union guy in New York. 
And I said, really? And I went out and started talking to him. He was a member of my union. <laughs> the leaders knew me. They were the people who I grew up with. They right. were they were people, Julio Mojico, who was from, you know, Puerto Rico. We had so much to talk about. So, you know, how can you not enjoy that experience? So to me, the campaign was great. This year, it's different. This year, no, it's different. Yeah, no, it, it's, it almost gives you that feeling like you know you're in the right place, like you know you did the right thing when, when you come across the people while you're, doing, while you're doing the work. Like, And how is it different this year? Well, I think that because of the pandemic, uh, it's different in many, many ways. The two that are most noticeable to me is if we had been in session, uh, the way it generally works from what I'm told is the session ends at the beginning of May. And, you know, it's very intense from February through May, the beginning of May, right. and then things like sort of come to an end. Uh, there's a rare exception when you have special sessions that go on, but that doesn't happen too often. People really focus on getting reelected. And this year that didn't happen. Even though we were not in session, the work never stopped. So uh, we were meeting every day, discussing policy. We were dealing with constituent concerns that were immensely difficult. And this was every day, all day, weekends, nights. I was not able to go out on the weekends and do campaigning. I was still on Zoom calls, dealing with problems that were urgent. We did something in the district here that I think was really important. In the end of April, we started, uh, I was able to organize a group of supporters, uh, not to support my campaign, not to support me, but people who cared about what happens in our community. And we made wellness calls and talked to 1,500 people and asked them, what do you need? Are things okay? And it was not a political call. And it was not you know, politically structured. And what we found was about 20% of the people we called had some desperate need. Uh, they were not getting their unemployment uh, processed. That was true for many, many, many people. Uh, they didn't get their stimulus check. Uh, that also happened very commonly. They had food insecurity. You know, there were people who had lost their work, didn't have unemployment yet, uh, especially independent contractors. That system didn't get up until May. And they had food insecurity. They needed answers about, you know, the, the non-eviction, the eviction moratorium was important, but then there were landlords who were hurting as well. So, you know, the just the work was... Uh, very, very intense. So we did not have the time to campaign. And that really hasn't changed uh, terribly. I'm still like, you know, spend most of my time doing the constituent work and, you know, or preparing for the special session. You know, it's been one thing after the next. So now, you know, then we had the Eversource uh, catastrophe with this tropical storm. I was going to ask you, how did you make out with that? You know, like everybody else, my house, uh, we lost seven huge, big old trees because we live on an old, uh, an old house on a property with a lot of trees. And seven of those, you know, big old maples, we lost 100-year-old trees, oh, and huge trees. And so we were fortunate they didn't do damage to the house, tore up the driveway pretty good and, and uh, the sidewalk. But it was chaos. And then, of course, we had no power. We had no internet. Uh, from Tuesday until Saturday. We were the lucky ones. We got it back Saturday night. And my work really from as soon as the storm hit and I realized the enormity of it, then it was like uh, getting on the phone and trying to deal with 
you know, really terribly difficult problems like the second day after the storm or maybe it was the third day I was in New Fairfield and uh, we were giving people pot potable, I never say that right, non-potable water, the water you can't drink. Right. Um, we were getting that to people and, you know, the fire down the street on a pole that was, had caught fire. And the first select woman there, uh, Pat Delmonico came to me and said, what do we, can you help us? Because we cannot get Eversource to deal with this. And there were several very dangerous situations. So I then went into the mode of uh, working through the governor's office and getting getting help and getting through. And eventually it was very, uh, I saw up close how uncoordinated, how the lack of preparation, the lack of coordination, the lack of uh, responsible leadership in Eversource was an abomination. And they should have to pay for that. People lost so much food. Um, from the lack of power. People had their lives turned upside down. People had damage to property. All of these things need to be accounted for. And you know, I'm very pleased that our co-chairs of uh, energy and technology are holding a hearing next week on the rate increase. That was like, oh my God, what bad timing. They had a huge rate increase in July. And then two weeks later, we get hit with the storm and they can't fix anything. So, you know, in some ways it's good. At least we you know, people are very agitated. And yeah. and we have a hearing this week on, uh, there's a PURA hearing, the regulatory agency is holding a hearing on Monday. Thursday, there's a hearing of the energy committee. And then that's on the rate increases. And then there will be a hearing uh, soon after on a proposal to pass legislation in our September special session that will address the losses and the lack of uh, response from Eversource. Got it. Yeah. We lost power here at the podcast studio from Tuesday to Tuesday, one full week. And we were super like we were, you know, we were glad no one got hurt. We were glad we all got through it, obviously. But we were bummed because we were supposed to speak to Senator Anwar that we uh, that week or like two days after we lost power. So we have to reschedule that. But um, but yeah. And then the, the another funny part about it was the fact that on July 31st, I released an episode that I did with David Arconti Jr., where we were holding Eversource accountable for the recent rate hike. And, yes. then, all the, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, the storm hits and, and we're just we're blacked out for like a week. I thought it was just so ironic and so funny. But uh, I'm very uh, fortunate. I will be doing a Facebook Live with uh, Representative Arconi, my friend cool. and and part of the Danbury delegation. And we are going to do a Facebook Live on the legislation in the first week in September. And so I, I'm looking forward to that. David does a great job with these issues and you know, something that I feel very strongly about. You know, they, they shouldn't get away with it. They shouldn't be able to make billions of dollars and then be totally unprepared uh, to address a, a storm like the tropical storm. And it could have been worse. And we could get more storms. I mean, we're not out of the storm season. It's true. So there's a lot that they have to account for. A couple more things. And one of those things that I want to ask you is, at the end of the day, what for you do you think is one of the most challenging parts of what you do? I think what's uh, most difficult is uh, I want everything to change quickly. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's nothing new for me. Uh, <laughs> of how I've been all my life. And uh, so it gets frustrating sometimes uh, when there's something you feel so strongly needs to change for people, and it's very hard to move the political process. Uh, it was particularly, uh, I, I really, my first 
session, my first term up there, my first, well, this is the term, but my first uh, session being a state senator, I was astonished by the, the process itself and how cumbersome it is to get a bill passed. You know, I recognize now I have a little more, a better understanding of those processes also are for, to guarantee input by the public and, and by your colleagues. Uh, so I understand it a little better, but it still was like very frustrating to me. I will say that first few months when I was struggling and really I kept saying, why did I do this? And I was trying to work on the paid family leave bill and the $15 minimum wage. These were two bills that I had campaigned on that I had worked on before becoming a center. I really believed they would make a difference for working families. And I just thought we could do that. And I, I, I had my first committee meeting the day after session opened. And I thought, boom, we're gonna get this done because we have the votes and we're, you know, like, and I'm gonna lead it through. I'm the chair of labor, I'm gonna get it done um, with my co-chair, I should say, in, in, the, in the house. And, and it just didn't work that way and it took months. And so the frustration, what made it most challenging is sort of putting the pieces together and getting good legislation passed. Uh, the reward, however, is that when we passed those bills and I was incredibly amazed at, and people tell me like this was my only experience, but they tell me this is, doesn't usually happen to a first term, you know, elected official doesn't get to pass their two favorite bills, you know, they're two the bills they campaigned on. But I had that uh, good fortune to do that and, and also at that moment see that when you do make things happen, when you do make changes for working families, that there's just an incredible rush to that. You feel this hard work and all the frustration, it's like you forget it. It's a little, I equate it to like when I had babies, like being pregnant is not that much fun, okay? Right. Hard work being pregnant. Um, but when you have that baby, it's like, oh my God, it's just wonderful. And you forget all that hard work. So it was a little bit like that when I we passed those bills and I was so excited afterward and we had actually accomplished something for people. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, one other thing I want to ask is Kamala Harris. What is your thoughts on a female vice president? You know, it's just, it's got to be, you, you must be so, you know, you must be really happy. I mean, we're all really happy, but it's, it's, it's super it sends a, such a great message to young women um, all across the, the country. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I have had the good fortune to have met Kamala Harris before when she was running for Senate wow. uh, at a Emily's List function in Washington, D.C. And she spoke, and I remember her so well at that moment because I thought she spoke so well, so articulate, and she really uh, projects an understanding of the real life problems of regular people. And uh, not everybody can connect in that way. And so I've always been impressed with her. Uh, I, I think the time is way past due for a, a woman to be uh, in the White House. And so it's, it's thrilling. I'm very, very happy that my mother, who's 91 years old and was very disappointed when Hillary wasn't elected, Oh, she never thought she would get to see a woman elected. And so I'm glad my mother's very healthy and I'm glad that she's going to get to see a vice president now and hopefully That's awesome. uh, a president Harris someday. Yes. But, um, but I do think that we have to also recognize that Kamala Harris, uh, as good as she is, 
might not have been the VP pick had it not been for the movement that we are experiencing at this moment in our history of not just women, but men and women saying that systemic racism, structural racism has to end. And here is an example where that movement and those voices and all those black women uh, who have voted historically for Democrats, all those black women who have been really structurally uh, the real strength of the Democratic Party, the real strong base of the Democratic Party, it is important to note that those voices have been heard and are going to be, I think Kamala Harris is going to really excite the electorate and electorate. And I think, you know, I think there will be tremendous support for her. Awesome. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm hoping for all the best. <laughs> and how did you like the Democratic National Convention? I'm sure you, I'm sure you, you've been catching it. What, what's your thoughts on that? I just found it fascinating. You know, I've been to Democratic conventions. In fact, cool. I've been to every Democratic oh, event wow. as an alternate or a delegate since 1994. I've been to six and they're always exciting. They are always inspiring. Uh, they are always high points. And, um, and, you know, I got to hear Barack Obama when he was a senator and I got to Hil hear Hillary Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton. I got to go to all those wonderful conventions. Nice. What I found interesting about this one uh, it was the first time I was watching it on TV. Right. And I liked it. I missed a lot of things when you're actually at the convention. You miss a lot of things because you're, um, you know, you go out, you find friends, you talk to people, you meet people from other yeah, big parties. <laughs> you do your politics, you know, like you, yeah. even when you're not, even when you're not in office, you still have like, you know, doing, you're doing building of relationships. So I missed all those little interludes that were happening, I'm sure, in the other conventions. And the interludes to me in this convention were amazing. You know, the, the voices that we got to hear from, the regular people, it was so well put together that the themes really came through, the inclusiveness of it, um, the fact that working people's voices, union voices, workers who had come together and made real change in their workplace, those voices were very prominent in those interludes, as well as in, you know, the convention speakers themselves. And so for me, uh, I thought it was an amazing convention. No, I, I completely agree as well. It was, it, was, uh, it was good. It was a lot of fun. Good to kind of get your mind off all the, the craziness of 2020 and everything. Yeah. I get to see some positivity, some, some hopefulness. Um, exactly. So, Senator Julie Kushner, before my guests leave me, I usually ask them a question on a hot button issue that I've kind of made more broad now. And the question was, uh, well, first of all, do you like pizza? Are you a, you, you're a pizza person? <laughs> oh, man. So here's the deal. I love pizza, except that I don't eat it because I love it too much. And I'm very <laughs> conscious of not gaining weight and uh, living a healthy lifestyle. And pizza, let's face it, is not the healthiest thing you can eat. Uh, but, you know, just the mention of it makes my mouth water. Because <laughs> <laughs> what I was asking people was, I know in New Haven, it's always who has the best pizza. But if you do go out to get pizza or just to eat in general, do you have a few places that Senator Julie Kushner likes to go to? If you don't want to mention any places to upset anybody, that's totally fine. No, no, I have a lot of favorites, okay? Uh, first of all, one of my favorites is Mothership Bakery because oh, I think same. she's 
a wonderful, uh, wonderful bakery and coffee and the atmosphere and the people who go there. It's like a community uh, coffee shop. And I love that. Big fan. Um, I love La Mitad del Mundo. I tell people this is Ecuadorian food. It's on Main Street. You know what? If it was in Oakland, California, there would be people waiting in lines outside the door. The food is excellent. Um, People, unfortunately, haven't experienced ethnic food in Danbury as much as they should. La Mitad del Mundo, great Ecuadorian food. Uh, Tapas from Barcelona up on uh, Gaudí's, up by by, um, Pembroke School. Uh, incredible tapas, you know, probably the place I have gone to the most. And so I really don't want to neglect. There are two places more than, but one in particular, my entire 30 years here has been fortune cookie on Mills, Mill Plain Road, which is a small takeout Chinese place. Okay. And I've been going there forever. They have very good food. Okay. And then, and then there's Subway sandwiches, you know, okay. <laughs> healthy and you don't, you know, want to wait long. I go to Subway on Mill Plain and I know the franchise owner there. He's lovely. And, you know, right. so, you know, my experience is very eclectic uh, uh, here in Danbury. I'm sure there's a lot of other places I go. Before the pandemic, we pretty much ate out all the time. Um, and now I still try and, and go uh, frequently. And tonight, I'm even though there's a COVID alert and I'm going to be very, very careful, I'm not going to sit and eat, that I am going to pick up food at Taste of Italy down at Anthony's Lake Club because That's right. we were talking I, about that. <laughs> I want to support the Italian club. And so awesome. uh, I will support them tonight. Awesome. That's great. Well, listen, a few of those places I haven't been to. So it looks like I have some homework to do, which is, uh, you know, homework as far as going and eating at new restaurants is always a uh, <laughs> favorite of mine. <laughs> so thank you so much, Senator Julie Kushner, uh, Senator representing the 24th Senate District here in Connecticut. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful evening over there at Taste of Italy in Danbury. I would love to have you back on again down the road, so don't be a stranger. And uh, have a great evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Huge thanks once again to my guest on the podcast today, Julie Kushner. Wishing you all the best as you continue your fight for all that is right in the state of Connecticut. And I look forward to speaking to you again down the road. Yet again, another episode of Sweeten Up is in the books. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate your feedback. As a reminder, you can play the podcast with the help of Alexa or Siri by simply saying, play the podcast, Sweeten Up with Jeff Spencer. Thank you as always to my best friends, the guys who make it all possible, post-production and music, Morgan Lutzi, art director, Kurt Vinci, editor and writer, Nick Pasacreta, and huge thanks as always to my guy, Devin Sapelli. Next week's guest on the podcast is a complete surprise. We are working out dates with many different people at this time, but you can expect me to be back invading your podcast queue as I always do every Friday morning. You will not want to miss out, I promise. But until then, you know the deal. Stay safe, stay healthy, love you all. Peace.